0: This is Beige Republic. Today, our guest is Pierre Valentin, an essayist and author who writes eloquently and broadly about the progression of American style woke ideology in France. But particularly illuminating is his exploration of how differing cultural legacies of religious tradition, so post Protestantism in the US and the UK, and post Catholicism in France, can help explain a divergence between these countries. In particular, France's tradition of both Catholicism and anti-clericalism has, Pierre argues, helped its left resist the disingenuous allure of le wokeisme, at least initially. We compare political and cultural trends in our respective countries and explore the absurdist paradoxes and logical fallacies that keep woke activists in an existential frenzy performing dissent, and raging against imaginary dragons. Pierre has such a nuanced approach to these topics, and it's fascinating to compare how similar trends are taking place in our respective countries. We talk about immigration, class divides, tyranny of the elites, woke capitalism, populism, the state of French media, and much more. Pierre tells us why he has hope for the future of the French Republic, despite all the challenges and crises of our era. His forthcoming book to be published in French later this year is called Understanding the Woke Revolution. Hi, Pierre. Thank you so much for joining us.
1: Hi, thanks for having me on.
0: Absolutely. So I would love to get started with you giving giving us just a little bit about yourself, uh, your interest in the subject and... You know your personal intellectual and political development
1: yeah sure um so i i'm french but i i grew up in london um so i i spent a lot of my time there when i was doing my british a levels so uh, it's your last two years of school before you go to college uh i picked english literature and mm-hmm. the reason i speak about this is in the first year we started studying a book called trumpets which was the story of a young man who, when his jazz player father dies, discovers actually his father was a woman and he has to deal with the turmoil of that for the rest of, well, the rest of the book, but more likely the rest of his life, even though it's fiction. Uh, And then the second year, I thought, oh, this is great. We're going to study Shakespeare now. It's going to be much better than what we studied last year. And we studied As You Like It and within the play As You Like It because there's... A bit of cross-dressing going on they said actually shakespeare was defending you know transgender rights uh, several centuries ago and, what year and so was i was this? quite
0: when was this, this? was like, what...
1: um 2015
0: 2016
1: okay uh, those were the years and then uh i left to study philosophy and politics at the university of exeter for a few years with a year in, in munich in between and there i could see uh several sort of uh, moral panics, uh, woke moral panics on campus. And so I was keenly aware of, I guess, these ide- ideological developments, which had yet to hit France at the time. Um, and I was bathed in them, in, in a sense. And so when I went back to Paris uh, around uh, 2020, uh, I started to think something had to be written about it in France. And so early 2021, I started writing for this French centre-right think tank called uh, Fondapol uh, on woke ideology and uh, a two part uh, report came out uh, in July, which uh, sort of put the word into the, um, the French public debate because nobody knew what it meant at that point. Nobody used the term so there's a lot of defining going on um a lot of sort of basic introductions and in that book i synthesized what i found to be perhaps the three most useful books on workness in the anglophone sphere which was cynical theories by helen pluckrose and james Lindsay for the philosophical side right. um the coddling of the american mind by height and Lukianoff for the more psychological aspect and a lesser well-known but just as good um The Rise of Victimhood Culture by Jason Manning and Bradley Campbell, which sort of focused on the sociological aspect of it, sort of, microaggressions on campus and whatnot. And so from there on, I I sort of entered the French public sphere that way and kept on uh, speaking in various media outlets about the work phenomenon uh, onwards. So, yeah, that's a short summary for what happened to me, in a sense.
0: And, I mean, did you ever consider yourself uh part of the left were you a young member of the old left at any point or it sounds like you were very young when you all of this change started to happen and and you were immediately there already but i'm wondering if if you ever considered yourself a person of the left not a
1: person of the left per se but i i'd say i was less politicized um, you know i only already started reading when i got to university basically so at the age of 18 which is not, not so long ago um, and, yeah, I, I think I, I, as as it often is the case, it's usually the left which, I guess, spurs a kind of cultural revolution onwards, and then there's a kind of a backlash or a reaction to it. And I think that's more what happened to me. Um, but no, I don't, I don't, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm sad the old left is dying out. Uh, it's happening in France as well as more obviously in the, in the Anglophone nations but I um, I wouldn't identify as part of that intellectual tradition.
0: Yeah, so let's go ahead and jump into that. Um, you wrote a chapter, I believe the book is called Handbook for Left-Wing Extremism, is that correct? Yes. Yeah. And you put forward a very interesting hypothesis uh, that differing cultural legacies of religious traditions, uh, post-Protestantism in the US and the UK and post-Catholicism with a strong legacy of anti-clericalism in France can help explain the divergence in how these countries have responded to the so-called woke takeover of culture discourse institutions. Um, In other words, as you put it, this can explain how France has in some ways resisted its allure. Can you go ahead and take us into into that work?
1: Sure. Uh, I guess the the intuition behind it the the idea which i like an angle i like to take often and which is often not taken in public discourse because we become quite atheistic and materialistic on average is that we often say um culture is upstream from politics but what lies upstream from culture is often theology and religious ideas because the west and the world was and still is a deeply religious place even though in the west it's changed a bit in the last few centuries but that's a blip uh, in the you know in all of humanity um and so what are the big sort of cultural conditionments or um, cultural paradigms that we live in and how are they linked to religion and so when studying the takeover of wokeness among western nations First of all, it is a pretty much uniquely Western phenomenon, which is in itself something that should be studied and thought about. Uh, I think we can quite clearly see that on average, the post Protestant countries, so countries who used to be Protestant, used to practice Protestantism and who are now only culturally Protestant. But the word only is kind of a, a, a poor term because that's still very significant, seem to resist wokeness far less than, say, post-Catholic countries, and maybe we can get to that later, more precisely post-Catholic and anti-clerical countries. Mm -hmm. So countries who have a weird relationship of, yes, we were largely Catholic, but we were also largely anti-Catholic, and both of these things together, sort of, you know, hating the priests, but also loving Christ, you know, this weird paradoxical combination, which ends up, it seems to me, giving up you know, the best sort of um, test-tube reaction to, for anti-wokeness. And the examples of this uh, I give is, so France, unsurprisingly, where the French left, even though it, it, it is, I wrote this quite a while ago now, uh, but uh, even though it is slowly changing, it is still in a relative way resisting better than, say, the American left then uh, even the British left in some aspects will go on the transgender front, they're quite brave um, sometimes. And, uh, and so I wanted to know why that was and wanted to analyze the sort of theological roots behind this quite mappable uh, change over the West.
0: What I find so interesting is your hypothesis, it it provides such a, we can better see in the example, the contrast among countries as an illustration of how we got to this point, instead of it being just, you know, a theory. I mean, many people compare wokeness to religion. There's, you know, others have talked about it as a neo-Protestant cult or neo-paganism or, you know, many variations, but I, I really like how your work Kind of gives us this this illustration that that's very real and goes a long way to explain history cultural differences and 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 how this phenomenon is kind of functioning in real time
1: Mm. well i'd say my my primary source of inspiration is this great specialist of religion in the us called joseph bottom who wrote uh, the post-protestant ethic a book in 2014 where at the time wokeness was a lot less powerful um, so my main inspiration was that, that 2014 book, who, again, 2014, Wokeness was slowly you know, taking shape in the U.S., but the religion comparison wasn't drawn nearly as frequently as it is today, so he kind of had this early intuition of, you know, he, he would have been less surprised than other people when we started seeing in 2020, you know, scenes of people washing feet, uh, scenes of, you know, George Floyd being drawn with a, a saint's halo behind him, Uh, you know the death of floyd becoming a place of pilgrimage Mm -hmm. his hypothesis would have anticipated to some extent these kind of religious effusions um and one i guess confirmation of this post protestant ethic hypothesis which i find particularly stunning is the the term itself so in the history of american protestantism you have according to different historians either three or four events called great awakenings uh and So, you know, the idea of being finally awake to yourself again, awake to the social fabric of reality and how it's tainted by sin, Um, you know, this kind of mentality of, uh, I know that the world is doomed, but since I know that, I'm superior to other people. So this kind of weird mix of pessimism and optimism of, you know, humility and arrogance. And they ended up calling themselves, even though they probably conceive of themselves as atheistic, they ended up calling themselves woke. So what interested me was the fact that the same word uh, woke in different forms awake um, lived on from the great awakenings from the Protestant tradition in the US and became uh, stay woke hashtags, you know, stay woke, stay awake, stay vigilant, evil is still present everywhere, don't fall asleep. and so the, I find this you know, semantic continuity particularly enlightening. And then the, there are some very direct you know, theological and philosophical links. For instance, the definition given by the theologian Protestant uh, Walter rauchenbuch uh, about 100 years ago of sin is pretty much the same definition given 100 years later, so today, of systemic racism it's really this idea that sin isn't a particular action it's not a particular individual doing something bad once and we tell him off and he corrects himself It's idea of this big you know murky water we're all bathing in without seeing it social fabric it's all around us and the first step of being awake is being aware of the sin around us and this is what makes me superior to the people who are asleep you know it's the same mechanism for conspiracy theories when you discussed with someone who's quite you know, knee-deep in real conspiratorial thinking, it's never level, a level playing field because you know, they're awake and you're asleep. You know, they, you, you, they took the red pill and you didn't. You know, there's the same kind of uh, hi- implicit hierarchy in discourse. Um, and so, yeah, for all, all of these reasons, I, I think the, the link isn't just semantic. It's also deeply theological and philosophical.
0: Yeah, I love this. Uh, I'm just going to read from your piece here where you talk about that, that concept of staying awake, staying woke, and you talk about the inseparable link between staying vigilant and, and the concept that evil is everywhere. Quote, if my salvation depends on an internal rejection of an evil world, then it, is nec- then it necessarily requires the very existence of this evil world in the first place. A not so bad world is a potentially not so good self. Hence, to abandon the belief in the fundamental depravity of the world would mean falling back into a deep existential anguish about one's own redemption. And I think that sums up so nicely. <laughs> uh, yeah, 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 yeah. You know.
1: this, is, this is what I, I really... I, this is what this book... Because I mentioned the three other books which helped me on my journey to sort of understand workism. Uh, and I guess this was the fourth one with a sort of theological side which helped me understand their mentality in general. It, again, it's another example of how theology can, you know, shed light on contemporary uh, disputes and discourse, um, and it especially helped me to to understand uh, and then explain why uh, they were so afraid. You know, the the woke activists they were so afraid of, um, you know, uh, enchantment. Of, of wonder so if you come up to them saying look i've i found this beautiful thing within the world they translate it because of what you read out as oh maybe i'm not i'm not that good so they every time you show them something beautiful in the world it's perceived as an attack on their self-esteem because yeah the a not so good a not so bad world is a not so good self so they, they, there's always this sort of these three premises that they have to hold together at all times in order to sort of hold themselves together is The world is bad, it's it's condemned. Um, I'm against this world, So this kind of dissident posture. And hence, and all three premises, if you take two of them, you have to accept the third one. Hence, uh, I'm not so bad, or at least I'm superior to other people. And we can mix them around and you always have to accept the third premise as a conclusion, whichever premises you start with. So if I say uh, I'm good and I'm against this world. Then you have to conclude hence the world is bad or else i wouldn't be fighting it Uh, and so there's always this kind of dissident posture which also um places them in a certain difficulty with regards to progress and power so i'll start with progress every time you improve something so every time you know in your dissident posture you slay a dragon well you become saint george for a while that's great Mm-hmm. But then you know what, what next? Uh, can I stay Saint George ten thousand years later? And so this you see this in the relationship to figures like Martin Luther King. They, they have to say, yeah, I'm, I'm I agree with him. He was great, but they also have to say he didn't achieve anything. You know, so they you have this tension of progress, which is inherent to this dissident posture, because you still have to be able to be Martin Luther King in 2023, whether that you know that's possible or not is kind of silly. And then also you have. A problem of power which is as soon as you start gaining traction as soon as you start gaining control of institutions you have to stay psychologically speaking and philosophically speaking a dissident so what do you do when you know you're the CEO of Blackrock and you say <laughs> well in doing woke things we're speaking truth to power you know what, what what next what do you do when you're the president of the United States when you're the you know where can you go next where's Where's the dragons, where are the dragons hiding, you know, the, the, and it's the paradox often used by a philosopher called Minogue, who called the paradox of St. George, um, uh, I'm missing the English word, St. George, um, well, basically at the end of his career, you know, what does St. George do at the end of his career? Well, he's fighting lizards. <laughs> and then at some point people say they see him swinging a sword in the middle of, of the desert into, into thin air. That's kind of, you know, the, the end point of the dissident is, is, is the end.
0: Yeah, it's all performance at, at this point. I mean, you can yeah. see that all around us. Um, could we get into sort of concrete examples that you can talk to us about in France of how this has played out? Like how maybe, because you do talk about the old left or the old guard left, still retaining some cultural and political power and importance and maybe that's waning now but can you kind of give us examples and tell us how this has played out in France in contrast to how you've seen things in the US
1: okay so um i'm not sure how much contrast there is i think there's a kind of jet lag uh, where the same things played out but with quite a substantial time difference um so the first time the word really started appearing was early 2021 uh i i contribute i contributed to that somewhat but there was also other publications and there was some i guess uh some symbolic sort of rumblings. some you know uh areas where we could see a, sli- a slight shiver from the old left that was happening perhaps a few years back. One Not of them in was... 2020. F-
0: Not in 2020? Like there were, even uh, if the word there was didn't some, appear? There was some,
1: um, they, the tricky thing is how much does a movement exists when the word which defines it doesn't, uh, mm-hmm. I, I think, uh, one area where you have, you see this coming was, I guess, cancellations. They didn't call themselves work, but it was the same sort of mental, moral, and theological paradigm where in a very sort of symbolic moment, uh, Sylviane Agazinski, which is a French left-wing philosopher, uh, who has almost no you know controversial positions except for one or two. That's always enough. Uh, and she happened to be very close, shall we say, to Jacques Derrida, back in the day and her conference got cancelled uh so you could almost see you know the, the children uh you know killing the, the father or the mother mm-hmm. in this case there mm-hmm. was also francois our socialist president uh who ended his term in 2017 and who uh had some book signings uh attacked even though he was left-wing so you could see these things just before 2020 start to happen and then during 2020, 2021, the word started arriving. Uh, there was some anti-woke uh, university professors who started bandying together uh, to form you know, sort of an intellectual coalition and in trying to resist. So these are developments we saw take place in the US maybe a, a decade prior to that, almost. Um, and we had uh, you know, more recently trans activists in Belgium and in France starting to get violence. You know, they've been violent in the US for a few years now. Uh, You you have, you know, you had a Nashville shooting. Uh, There was one in Colorado as well. So we we see, I guess, the same events slowly taking place. And one of the more uh, damning pieces of evidence of how the left in France, despite the jet lag, is, you know, slowly catching up, although let's not be, you know, fatalistic, um, is the use of what we call uh, écriture inclusive. So it's called inclusive writing. Mm-hmm. So you know it's a bit like writing Latin x. Uh, the idea is that the last word after the full stop within the word is to be more inclusive and not you know gender the word. Uh, and so in French, we have a masculine neutral, which means you know both men and women, but the activists say actually you know symbolically, it's showing that you know the male erases the female from the public sphere. So this kind of writing is especially ugly because, you know, you're fragmenting the most beautiful language in the world with you know a full stop at the end of uh, many words. This kind of writing never existed publicly in any sort of significant shape in 2012. And during the 2012 presidential uh, election in France, no left-wing candidate used it. In 2017, we had one or two slightly dabbled in it, one or two candidates. In our 2022 race, we had a majority of left-wing candidates use it. And, you know, if you pursue the dotted line, unless there's a strong reaction by 2027, you'd have to be incredibly brave amongst the French left to not use it as a candidate. So I think this is one example of you know this generational shift that we saw take place in the Anglophone world, taking place in the French world.
0: It's interesting because, you know, a lot of these, the concepts that precipitated that came before the cultural phenomenon of, of wokeness as we see it now it came from academia came from postmodernism post structuralism but it's now a very american thing and you know much of the world at any given time is mad at the us for its cultural exports i sometimes wonder why is this not more easily rejected by, by so many other states? Because it really is such an American phenomenon and it's being sort of exported wholesale in the way that we've exported other, other cultural phenomenons or you know the way we've imposed our values on the rest of the world. Like why is there not the same effect of uh, other countries and other, other cultures just re- rejecting this wholesale?
1: You're putting the finger on a very important paradox here, which is we have a kind of um, a a paradoxical behavior on both sides of the Atlantic within the young activists, the American activists say they're anti-imperialistic and they're they're still spreading this kind of, you know, intellectual imperialism. It's America's ideas, in a sense, being spread around the world and our young activists also have this kind of paradoxical reaction because they, they often see, you know the CIA is being behind pretty much every, you know, uh, IR facts, you know, every time there's an invasion, every time something's happening. There's often this kind of, oh, you know, uh, Americans are uh, going for oil across uh, the Middle East and everything. But they, you know, the whole Netflix culture, which is clearly American, they swallowed up whole with no critical thought whatsoever. And we've, mm-hmm. we've pretty much arrived at, um, at a point where they don't bother translating many of the woke concepts, you know, like, mansplaining just you know cross the atlantic and never got translated uh many others too um uh, man uh, all of those so you know this is like evidently not french uh and also more problematically for them evidently american so you know imperialistic in a way um but you know despite that neither side of the atlantic amongst the activists sees this contradiction uh, so it, it is quite surprising. And I think one reason why it's not rejected is that the, we're, we're faced with a, a really sort of long-term uh, dynamic here, cultural dynamic, which is, you know, after the end of the Second World War, well, basically, many Europeans psychologically felt they'd lost the war and it was, you know, thanks to the Americans that they'd won it and, you know, see the American soldiers passing through the cities. Uh, and there was this kind of, you know, with the Marshall, uh funding we got, this kind of, you know, cultural fascination for the us, which hasn't left us and which is now just taking a different form. And we can see an Americanization of Europe in many different forms and wokeness. So, you know, wokeness is only one of its different products, but it's a pretty toxic one. It's a pretty effective one in being in its distribution It's quite viral. Uh, but yeah, this is, you know, a, a train in a sense that has gotten a lot of speed and that won't slow down quickly because it's been, you know, running for a while.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And the old left in, in France that you've characterized as like the Charlie Hebdo old left, what are some ways that they are resisting, that they, that they do remain relevant, that they have, uh, you know, a place still in the cultural and political discourse?
1: I think, um, and this harks back to what we were saying about who, uh, was, um, you know, a, how, how can we demonstrate and objectively demonstrate the, the shift amongst the French left. Right. And one way to demonstrate this is the lack of institutional support to the non-woke left. Uh, and I think there are maybe two or three exceptions I can name. I can't find any others. Uh, what do I define as an exception? Uh, An institution who is willing to publicly, you know, write articles or do conferences or position itself in certain cases as being non-woke or anti-woke and who uses the term because I always find that's quite a a good, you know, canary in the cold mine is when the term disappears because, you know, it's it's political, it's controversial. They stop using the term and then often they, you know, follow the ideas themselves um, a few years later. So the, the, the only counterexamples for me are. A left-wing press magazine called Marianne, uh, um, a think-tank called Jean Jaurès, and then Charlie Hebdo. I'll come back to Charlie Hebdo a bit, but for the first two, symbolically what I find fascinating, and this is what I was arguing for in the book chapter, uh, is that Marianne is the symbol of the French Republic, who was you know built uh, in large part around laïcité, so it's the kind of anti-clerical French left, and mm-hmm. Jean Jaurès was the socialist politician at the beginning of the 20th century, who helped write the 1905 laïcité law, which we have in France. So you have these two figures, you know, sort of anti-clerical figures, at least in how they were understood by the left.
0: And, and can you just, is... for our listeners, laïcité translates to sorry. something like a uh, secularism, right?
1: Yeah, a, a, a very, very
0: French tradition.
1: Yeah, a very French version of secularism, sorry. Mm-hmm. Which explains why some people amongst the left, or well, like Charlie Hebdo, are willing to be brave on the question of political Islam, uh, saying, mm-hmm. you know, that's not our values, that's not, that's not the, you know, the the progress we want to push forth. That isn't progress, etc. Um, and th- they're willing to say it. You know, you have some brave papers being published in the, the Marianne Press. You have some brave reports being done by Jean-Jaures uh, on the question of you know immigration, uh, which is something the rest of the left doesn't touch, even though it's hugely popular, even within their bases, to be tough on immigration. Um and so you see this you know divide amongst the left where there's only a few institutions who still today are willing to embrace, say, uh majoritarian positions uh and not minoritarian positions, uh not you know, hugely divisive positions. Uh and for Charlie Hebdo, um I think their the cultural significance since uh since what happened to them in 2015 where they were attacked uh, by islamic terrorists has somewhat waned uh, a bit um they, they still you know exemplify this old french left which is anti-woke and uh, harsh on um, on political islam and immigration to some extent uh but uh, you know they the the sad truth is they were they were dying out uh as um as a, as a paper before the attack the attack which was evidently a a disaster and a tragedy helped them, you know, regain some notoriety and now they're they're kind of fizzling out a bit. There's still this kind of global national slash global respect for them for what happened, but they're less culturally relevant than the first two I, I, I cited.
0: And the backlash to the increasing predominance of woke ideology in France, how do you see that taking shape?
1: Uh, it's a good question. Um, I think as what happened within the US, you always have sort of a first stage where there's not many people who are sort of actively woke, not many people who are actively not woke, uh, and then as time passes on, the the huge majority within the middle, which doesn't know what the term means and isn't really on either side, but it's still less on the woke side because that's it's new, it's weird concepts, you know, from America and all that but still the sort of latent, slow, um, unpoliticized majority is slightly shrinking. That's what tends to happen because the country gets polarized along these lines. It's what happened in the US. I mean, I can't imagine many Americans have never heard of the term woke before, whereas there's still, I guess, a sizable portion of French people who haven't. So that's on the sort of quantity aspect of it. But that's not the most important thing, because there's almost never a referendum on wokeness within nations. It's always through uh, institutional capture. It's always through sort of, you know, obscure bureaucracies, uh, di trainings and all that. So that's the more important thing. And that's where, for instance, Christopher Rufo is doing a great job in pushing back on that within the US. Um, sorry. Yeah.
0: Oh, I just was going to ask, do you guys, how do you see this increasing phenomenon of just you know woke capitalism every every corporation every advertisement every major powerful bureaucratic institution uh virtue signaling at at the highest slickest level do are you starting to see that
1: yeah okay so i think there are several things on the public front we have uh a few mayors this year for pride month who uh, flew the pride flag and in itself, the, the flag as of itself is interesting because w- the recent version, which you guys have, has just landed in France. So the one with the Black Lives Matter colors um, and all of those, although it's always one step behind from the new flag, which is bound to come out. And Microsoft had a very ambitious flag released a, a few months <laughs> back. Um, so you're always one step behind and your flag is always becoming right wing, whatever you do, if you can't follow up with the movement. Um, but so there was an interesting development because you could kind of quantify what version of the flag lands in which countries and where it flies. Uh, and so that, that's something that would be an interesting work to pursue that in a bit. So the French, the, the new version arrived in France this year. It was in the UK. I can see it on um, garbage collector uh, vans like three years ago. Now it's only arrived here, so you can sort of see the shift um, and. Within so that was a few public institutions doing that, which was new, so that's a sign of its progression. Within the private sector, I think there are three kinds of firms uh with regards to woke takeover. Uh one of them is um the sort of French uh version of a big American firm. So like if you have an app you like French Apple. Well, they 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 don't resist to wokeness because they get orders from you know over the Atlantic, and today is going to be Pride Day for the enterprise, so everyone everyone has to dress in pink or something, and that just happens, and then you have nice LinkedIn posts which come up, and so th- this is you know seamless almost. Then you have the very big French uh, firm, but which has branches abroad, and that doesn't do a very good job of resisting either. Um, and then you have a third version, which is like the small scale French firm, uh, which, you know, small company, which does a, a good job of resisting and is kind of, you know, alien to that woke world. And then within those three categories, we could cut it up in a different sense and look at what aspects of woke filter through in the private side. Um, we have the the woke feminism, which is very strong. Uh, we have our own, you know, Uh, d'angelos on that front uh, who are paid uh, by both private and public sector to you know preach the gospel uh within the walls uh and on the race side it's a bit more tricky um it's kind of a paradigm you know we we, we're not allowed to um, have ethnic statistics in france uh so there's something you know it puts french people uh slight unease uh so the, the gender aspect is quite strong within the two kinds of firms i, I discussed uh but the race aspect it, it's growing it definitely is growing but it's it's harder to push on a french audience than it is on an american audience i think you wouldn't have you know uh ice cream sellers uh, ice cream companies like ben and jerry's who would lecture us on systemic racism i mean ben and jerry's the french version could do it but you wouldn't have a french you know ice cream company who would do that that's you know people would be like let me buy my ice cream i'm not going to count white and black people within my firm you know it's kind of so there are some aspects of work who are more french uh compatible than others but we are being americanized and hence racialized at great speed
0: you mentioned france doesn't collect statistics on on race or ethnicity can you talk about that and the history
1: yeah um The the French Republic, one of its founding ideals was really to insist on several things amongst which laicite, so secularism, strict separation of church and state, um, sometimes quite an aggressive separation historically, uh, and also rationalism uh, and universalism. And so the conception of universalism, which was often pushed forth, which I think has shown to have failed uh, is the idea that the particular so for instance your nation uh, is an obstacle uh, for the universal so if you're you know rooted firmly within your, your nation you can't really be universalist because you're too particular you're too you know bogged down in particularism you're too uh, parochial you know not in my backyard it's kind of you know this is how they it's often perceived and so in this desire i think To have uh, the universal without the particular, I think in France and elsewhere, too, we ended up having the opposite, which is, well, now we'll have the particular without the universal. And so now you have, you know, tribal politics and you can see this clearly in the US. It's coming in France as well, where we are regressing back to this sort of tribal stage uh, of very reduced particularism Uh, and. I find it interesting that within intersectionality uh, you have groups which don't cohere, which don't add up nicely, which don't fit. That's been said many times mm-hmm. and whose only coherence is to be against the higher level. Like the only coherence of many of these groups, especially the LGBT acronym, which, you know, mixes sex and gender, uh, as Douglas Murray often points out. You know, these people don't even live together, they don't go to the same bars, they don't speak to each other. So what does the acronym even mean? It's talking of a community that doesn't meet. Isn't that a contradiction in terms? Well, the only coherence of that is to be against the wider, what they call the system, you know, against the nation. And so we have this kind of weird particularism, which is built, uh, which doesn't, you know, slowly build up from the region to the nation to the universal, which is now my group is its coherence is formed against the high group. So my woke clan, its only coherence amidst its myriad of contradictions is to be against France, for instance. Um, And so I think this weird conception of universalism, I'm I'm not directly responding to the question, I can get to it later, but this weird conception of universalism, which demanded uh, the universal without the particular, has ended up, you know, um, generating the, the reverse. The, you know, the particular without the universal and now uh, they can say, oh, well, universalism, 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 bring it back. But, you know, they're, they're sort of asking us to climb back up uh, a slope which they've greased, you know, that um, it's we can't go back that way. We have to find new ways of, you know, really understanding what universalism means. And in a, in a Catholic sense, there's this principle of subsidiarity, which was pushed forth uh, several decades ago. Which is to say every lower rung uh, has to be able to do what it can without being, uh, you know, taken over and um, losing its responsibility by the higher rung. And then you slowly build upwards this way. And now we have this sort of inverse thing where the lower rung says my coherence, my identity as a group is built against what the higher rung is saying. So my coherence as work is to be against France. It's the only coherence they have in France uh you know the race thing works on a kind of marxism and the gender thing f- functions on a kind of you know postmodernism and the only reason these two confuse that they are against a same enemy you know it's a kind of negative unity which binds the woke phenomenon
0: can you uh give us your take on the the protests in France this summer
1: Yes, the the so-called French riots, as the American media was often portraying them. I think the the term in itself uh, was a bit frustrating because yeah. it it was kind of depicted as you know uh, a question of purchasing power, you yeah, almost like you know we're, we're poor. We the kind of classic image we often have of France of we're going to block the trains and ask for a pay rise. Whereas this was not at all what was happening in France we had you know clear ethnic riots um, by you know places that the, the areas of France that the left has where the left has tried to apply you know, even the old left has tried to apply their conception of universalism, which was to say you know we're so universal that you can hate France and everything's going to be fine And you know you know how this very deep hatred of the country, which is deep, Uh, Within the bones of many people living in the country who are either first generation or second generation uh, immigrants and who very clearly have decided uh, to burn down uh, things like uh, mayor's houses. We even had a mayor whose house was attacked by a sort of battering ram car where the mayor himself wasn't there, but they, they tried to kill uh, the children of the mayor, They tried to kill his wife. They were chased after them for several meters by car. We had horrific images of schools being burnt down. We had, you know, police, uh, a policeman almost died from a shot uh, that was just stopped by his uh, bulletproof vest. And all of these things were were very poorly covered, I find, especially in American media um, as a kind of, oh, well, you know, French police are racist, uh, so in a sense, you know, this was simmering over, it was bound to happen. Uh, whereas where you can see, they, they targeted, the rioters targeted many things that weren't police. They targeted any kind of sort of institution within France, any kind of French flag that was, you know, lying on a building that meant the building would be burnt down. Um, the, the amount of things that were burnt over a span of five to six days is simply, you know, bewildering. And what's going to happen now, and it's going to breed a lot more resentment within the French majority, is that the French taxpayer is going to have to pay for having been, you know, for having had his, his house burned down in a sense, you know, uh, taxes are going to go massively to those areas again, which is what has been happening in France for several decades now, as opposed to the rural areas who have been left behind by the, the French governments, uh, one after the other. And so now the French people have had their house burnt down to a large part. They'll have to pay for it, and they'll even get called racist by American media. So they, it's like a, a triple blow, uh, supremely unjust, and it's very, very worrying for the future of the nation. You've reached the end of this episode of the free version of Public's podcast. To access the full version, become a paying subscriber at public.substack.com.